Hello and welcome to the Media Law Podcast. I'm Tom Bennett. There has been much academic ink spilled on the subject of privacy and the doctrine of misuse of private information over the last two decades, but comparatively little of it has focused on the available remedies. Indeed, remedies are often, too often, treated as something of an afterthought by many of us in academia, with the result that the nature of and the principles behind the available remedies for breaches of privacy does not get the attention it deserves. Luckily for us, I'm joined today by two scholars whose work brings remedies in privacy and particularly the availability of different types of damages awards very much back to the foreground. They are Jeevan Harry-Harran of Queen Mary University of London and Judith Gillen of the University of Nottingham. Also with me, his presence as constant as the Northern Star is my co-host Paul Ragg of the University of Leeds. Hello to everybody. Nice to have you here. Hi, Tom. It strikes me that probably a sensible starting point for our discussion today is to go right back to the very beginnings of misuse of private information, because um, it's noteworthy that the way damages awards are are calculated and the amounts that get awarded have changed quite a lot since uh, the Naomi Campbell case. Um, As listeners will no doubt know, misuse of private information first emerged as a rather incomplete at the time doctrine in the case of Campbell and Mirror Group newspapers, which was heard in the House of Lords and judgment given early 2004. Um, so we've had nearly 20 years, um, and I know that uh, Jeevan and Judith, both of you have uh, views on the way that damages awards have changed, but perhaps you could, um, let's start with, with, with you, Judith, perhaps you could uh, give us an overview of uh, how you think damages awards have changed in that two decades. Yeah, uh, very happy to. So <clears throat> really the early cases are characterized I think by very low quantum um so you know first first sort of decade really off the 2000s it's you just don't get damages really uh above 10k um they're typically two three five five thousand pounds um there's also a character I think another sort of trend is a lack of any kind of in-depth discussion about how judges get to that low quantum. Um, So what we know is that judges talk about distress and they talk about injured feelings. So it seems to be that that low amount, it's for distress and injured feelings. But um, beyond that, uh, there's not much discussion. Um, An early case, Douglas and Ho, we see some pecuniary uh, loss being awarded as well but that's just not really been much of a feature of MPI cases the the harm that's typically suffered is you know injured feelings humiliation distress and the like mm. um, and, and then really the Mosley case I suppose is a bit of a turning point uh, where where it, it's an outlier uh, where we get 60,000 pounds awarded um, there is obviously uh, a lot of distress uh, suffered in that case. It was a very egregious breach of privacy. Uh, but but one other feature that the uh, that uh, the judge points to in Mosley 
is this idea of um, vindicating a right. Uh, and that, that also seems to be a reason why we reach this higher, this higher sum. Yes, so if I think back to Campbell, the award in Campbell for the breach of privacy, which in, involved uh, revelations about Naomi Campbell's um, uh, use of class A drugs and uh, treatment at Narcotics Anonymous, and photographs were published of her leaving Narcotics Anonymous. Mm. Um, and she was awarded £2,000 of memory serves and damages, which is a, a, a low amount of money. Yeah, 2000 for um, distress, and then there's some ag- aggravated damages as well. So yeah. aggravated damages are also, I guess, a feature um, from, from, early, from the early cases. But, I mean, altogether, her quantum, I think, is, is something like 3500 It's It is low, yeah. It's very low. And then Mosley, it's, it's £60,000 with the judge saying that no amount of damage is no amount no award could possibly compensate yeah. for the amount of privacy yeah. uh, invasion that had taken place mosley of course the victim of uh, an expose of a, a sexual encounter that he engaged in yeah. with a number of uh, sex workers um with photographic and video uh, footage that was made available publicly as well mm-hmm. So uh, you know, no doubt, very distressing case, but the quantum there, both high and haphazard. Um, Jeevan, can I bring you in at this point? How do you see this story as having panned out? Thanks so much, uh, Tom. Thanks so much, Paul, for having me along with, uh, with Judith. It's, it's a really interesting story, and I, I do agree with the way that, that Judith has characterised it there, where you have these very low awards as the action is first recognised in this real shift in the, the Mosley decision. It's, it's fascinating because in these early cases like, like Campbell, it's quite interesting to go back and look at them now. First, the first thing that you notice is that damages weren't at issue in any of the appeals in that, in the, in that case. Mm-hmm. And so it is really sparse, some of the details that, that we have uh, in terms of the discussion of damages, damages altogether in these decisions. The other point which I just draw out that's really interesting across the board in in damages and misuse in private information, especially in these early cases, is the way that data protection is often wrapped into the the claim, but then the uh, judge makes the decision often on the party's submission that the data protection claim rises and falls on the back of the back of the misuse of private information claim. And so the damages awarded are both for the breach of privacy and also for the, for the breach of data protection. And obviously, in later years with cases like Lloyd and Google recently, we've seen a bit of a, a, bit of a difference in the approach taken. So it's another respect in which the, uh, the early cases seem, seem more straightforward, but also more simplistic compared to the way that the Yes, it's an interesting point you make about the emergence of claims for breach of data protection principles. And it strikes me that that is, it's it's quite characteristic of the way that privacy law has developed, isn't it? That there are always odd doctrines providing incidental protection for particular interests. And early on, that was breach of confidence and uh, even 
malicious falsehood, of course, in the Kay and Robertson case came in just to provide some sort of a remedy. And then when you have misuse of private information that has some still not terribly well explored relationship to breach of confidence, might be described in any number of ways, but there are still gaps. And so you have the data protection principles, which when, when available, get pleaded and intellectual property rights as well. We see uh, pleaded in certain types of privacy case. And that no doubt muddies the, the waters. Do, is there something fundamentally different about damages awarded for breach of data protection principles and damages awarded for misuse of private information, do you think? I personally think it's a, it's, it's a, it's a difficult question. And it's the one that the Supreme Court had to consider, consider in, in law. And um, this is Leggett in that in that case, made some, some interesting comments about the distinction between these two two actions. Now reached the position where, I know, Tom, this is something that you might disagree on, that misuse of private information is kind of firmly enshrined as a standalone tort in, 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 in English law. And you have a characterization there by, by the Supreme Court in Lloyd that it's a tort that involves strict liability for deliberate acts. That's the language that's, that's used. By that, that by that, I'm pretty sure they, they mean something pretty close to intentional torts in the old, in, in, in the old language. And in that case, it's that tort, that intentional tort, or that tort for strict liability for deliberate acts is contrasted with the data protection regime where damages are only awarded, where there's a want of care on the part of one of the, of, the, of the defendant. And so that's a basis upon which we see the Supreme Court potentially distinguishing out between the types of breaches of privacy that occur in the privacy context versus in the, in the data protection one. That's yeah. one, of the, one of the reasons why the court goes and says that you can't analogize between these two frameworks and say look across the damage. I mean, sorry, it's a bit of a tangent from from damages, but what I think has been interesting in the past few years is that you're seeing a lot more sort of variety in the fact patterns of MPI cases uh, as well. So if we think about these early cases that you know we've we've talked about, um, like Campbell, uh, Douglas, and Hello, a lot of them are are characterised by you know, basically celebrities. Um, and, and press intrusion, whereas in more recent years, you're seeing some cyber attack cases, and that involves, you know, that's involving claims uh, for both data protection and, and MPI. So we're getting to examine the kind of the differences between the two regimes, I think, in a, in a, in a better way, in a more kind of detailed way, including the standard of liability. So, I mean, from the perspective of someone who, who researches in the area, that's that's been a a good kind of uh, development. Uh, one of my favourite uh, decisions from the early cases is uh, McKennett and Ash, uh, which uh, is a is a sort of odd uh, fact pattern in a way, but is to do with um, it's unusual in a way because it's not a sort of kiss and tell story as such. Um, it is more a sort of confidentiality type case in the in the old fashioned sense. Uh, of uh, a singer um, whose friend uh, keeps a, a, a diary of her activities and then publishes these as a, as a sort of uh, prank book, which um, 
Kennett, the singer, objects to. But what's interesting from a damages perspective is just how cursory the examination of damages is right at the end. Uh, there's a there's a single paragraph with a I think a single sentence yeah. in which Mr Justice Ed more it could have Mr Justice Ed could have said more or less does say oh I'm going to find in favour of McKenna uh, what should we say in relation to damages oh I don't know uh, something modest uh, five thousand pounds I mean it's almost it's almost that sort of level of casualness. Um, there doesn't seem to be any basis for it at all. But what he talks about there is distress um, and hurt feelings, um, which is interesting because that's different to um, Naomi Campbell in a way because in the House of Lords, the, the, the lordships and her ladyship were concerned with the effect, the purported effect of uh, the intrusion uh, upon Naomi Campbell's ability to conduct uh, or receive um, rehabilitation through Narcotics Anonymous, which makes it sound like a consequentialist claim in the way that McKenna is a consequentialist claim. You know, you have you have um, made this tortious breach and therefore it has affected me, or the, the, the tort victim, uh, and therefore you should pay to, to the level that you have affected the individual. The the uh, reasoning there in Campbell is more sort of theoretical. Um, it's it's not a sort of uh, literal sense of well, here is the damage that has been done. You have affected her ability to rehabilitate. It's more a sort of perspective, uh, or a figurative or a hypothetical impact on her ability to receive um, rehabilitation. And in that sense. The, the award of damages at all is strange because, one, it's such a low level. You know, consider all the strong statements in Campbell about how important Campbell's ability to rehabilitate in private. Think about how strong those statements are, then compare that to the sums. And it does beg a question. I don't, I'm not sure the later cases have solved this, but it does beg a question about whether interferences with um, privacy are calculated as if it were an intrinsic breach. In other words, you know, you breach it intrinsically or whether you breach it in an instrumental way and damages reflect the actual loss you've suffered or the fact of suffering loss. I think that this is one of the most kind of fascinating aspects of these, these early cases compared to the, to the later ones. And it's, I think it's an issue that we're going to come into discuss in a bit of detail in terms of these awards of damages for loss of control of, of information, damages so-called for breach of privacy itself, and the extent to which the early awards of, awards of distress can be said to subsume that, that breach of privacy within it, or whether we need to have a, those, those damages awarded on a, on a, on a standalone basis. I think you're. I think you're right, Paul. I think you see, see kind of a real, real tension in some of the the, the cases, which still hasn't been resolved, already present, right in those those early early weeks of this action. I think as well when we're talking about these early cases, I mean, and and the and the kind of lack of of development of of um, of principles on which the damages are are being awarded. I mean, it's such an early time for the tort, right? I mean, this this tort has just been sort of 
recognized, uh, created, um, and, it's, and it's fairly controversial, right? The existence of a privacy tort in England and Wales. So, I mean, I'm not surprised kind of by this tendency towards um, modesty and uh, a tendency towards, you know, awarding damages on, on a more orthodox basis. And by that, I mean, by just by reference to kind of consequences. Um, you know, there's, there isn't the compensatory principle is just kind of being being applied there. And, and there's nothing sort of stretching that or or uh, you don't see this this uh, move towards upticking damages. So I think appreciating these early cases in, in the kind of context of the time is is important uh, too. And then obviously, as, as we move on and the tort becomes a bit more well established and, um, you know, a bit less controversial perhaps um there's a bit more judicial kind of uh i don't know tenacity in uh in the in the remedies that are being uh, awarded mm. and parties are possibly being to push the point further as well that maybe in those early cases you wouldn't have seen submissions on that, that point or perhaps even only written submissions i'm speculating there whereas in later cases there might be a real willingness on part of parties to some of these tricky points points mm. forward um, especially in a case like Gilati itself which can, concerned only damages basically yeah one thing that I've always thought is interestingly characteristic of damages awards in MPI is just how haphazard they seem to be and as Paul rightly says, there's this kind of throwaway nature in the early cases of where it doesn't seem that the courts are spending a great deal of time considering the rationale for particular awards when they're dealing with distress. Um, perhaps because the courts find it very difficult to quantify distress or even to work out you know, why, why it is something that is worthy of uh, an award of damages. Um, but then... We do see more awards for these things in, in, in cases, say, involving children. Um, and that adds another dimension because it occurs to me that there are a number of cases in which there is no evidence that the children suffer any distress. Yeah. Take, for example, the, the, the Murray case where uh, J.K. Rowling's infant son is the claimant in respect of photographs taken of the family out on a, a public outing. Uh, just went to the shops or whatever they were doing. Um, there's no evidence that this infant child suffered any distress or that even he was aware uh, of photographs being taken or published, and there's no reason why he would be. And yet, I mean, not quite in that case, because we see, you know, that was a strikeout decision, so ultimately yeah. it battles, but we see awards of damages in other cases involving uh, children, and they tend to be awarded on quite... In, in, in quite inconsistent ways, I think. Right? Um, and so what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, the, the children cases are, are really fascinating. Um, so, you know, to take an example, you've got the Weller decision. Mm. You know, it's, in a way, it's similar facts to, to the Murray case that you were talking about, Tom. Um, mm. You know, uh, infant twins being photographed on a family outing in a public place. Um, nothing embarrassing about the photographs, but they do, you know, they're obviously off. Um, it's off off a kind of family uh, day trip. 
um, difference here being that there's there's a teenager uh, at, uh, as well present on his photograph, the 16 year old, um, and the quantum then differs. You know, um, the teenager gets I think five thousand pounds um, for. Yeah, for and that is with direct reference to the humiliation and embarrassment she suffered mm. in this publication, especially because they confused her with uh, her father's partner. Uh, so there, there's a bit of added sort of humiliation to that. But yeah, I mean, the, each each infant twin, I think, got it was two thousand five hundred each. Um, that's not for distress, right? Like these um, these infants aren't aware of the breach, um, and an even more kind of. Uh, Egregious example of this would be the AAA case. Um, again, an infant photographed um, and uh, fifteen thousand pounds awarded um, for that photograph. So these, this is not; these are not nominal sums, right? These are substantial damages that are awarded where there's no distress, no kind of uh, adverse consequences actually, i.e., factually experienced by the kids so absolutely the question then becomes well what what's happening in these cases what's what's the sum being awarded for if not distress yes and the wildly inconsistent sums there i mean Mm. you have claimants children you have child claimants in both weller and triple a of broadly similar ages when it comes to the 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 young children in weller the infants yeah and yet there is the difference between two and a half and fifteen thousand pounds, which is a very substantial percentage terms difference in the damages awarded. Was there really twelve and a half thousand pounds difference in the amount of distress or indeed in privacy invasion that, that was suffered in those cases? Um, yeah. There may well be differences, but you know, is, is there a consistent thought process around the the, the quantum? Yeah, I was just going to say as well that. Um, I think that the other the other facet of these uh, cases involving children brings us to a sort of wider point, which is relevant to this question about the nature of the claim itself. I mean, Tom and I have discussed in the past whether misuse of private in- information tort is in- inflexible or sufficiently flexible to count as a sort of intrusion tort as well. Mm-hmm. In other words, to capture both elements of what in America is called disclosure of embarrassing facts and intrusion into seclusion now my sense with some of the children cases is that actually the judicial reasoning here is very much based on intrusion into seclusion Um, and that when children are used either for a reason to justify the outcome usually in injunction type cases in uh, k and news group newspapers those range of cases BDE and MGN, uh, or where the child themselves is is uh, a claimant, um, it, it does seem to be that sense of intrusion which comes from uh, press coverage and uh, aggressive news gathering technique that the courts seem most keen to uh, compensate the individual for. Well, it really is a sort of harassment case, dressed as a privacy case. It's a photographer going around chasing the wellers scaring the kids AAA although the judge doesn't accept the evidence but AAA is also a sort of harassment kind of case the argument being that there's all these journalists camped outside this the mother's house um and and the child is distressed visibly distressed according to the nanny 
as, as uh, the mother tries to leave with the child. Does this bring us closer to the realms of actionability per se? I mean, if there are damages awards without evidence of damage, I mean, Paul's explanation is it's accepting intrusion as wrongful and perhaps harmful. I wonder whether it's even simpler than that, that the courts are just deciding that there needs to be a reflection of the fact of the tort and that uh, an award akin to uh, uh, an award of damages per se is uh, what's needed. At, what po- at which point it becomes that, that issue of quantum, uh, there's a reason why it's difficult in uh, cases that are actionable per se, because the courts are not looking to try to quantify the harm, but rather to reflect the wrongness of the tort. Um, my sense is that that's that's probably exactly what's happening here. I think that's kind of the way that these damages are almost explicitly framed in those later cases like Firati and going forward where there's an award of damages for infringement of the right to privacy, privacy mm-hmm. itself. One way of kind of framing, say, this discussion around the children cases and some of the difficulties there is to step back and think about it in terms of the difficulties of just applying traditional tort law damages principles in the privacy context and problems that that, that kind of throws up. So in the case of most most torts, you're in, you're in the realm of pecuniary losses, losses that are more easily valuable in, 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 in money, monetary terms. A privacy tort immediately cast that into question and so for example even even in say the leading textbook on damages mcgregor on, on, on damages generally you have this weird switch around in the privacy chapter where suddenly non-pecuniary losses are coming ahead of pecuniary losses and there's only very few cases which are emerging which are dealing with any pecuniary losses whatsoever and then within non-pecuniary losses judges are then having to pigeonhole these damages into one of established categories of non-pecuniary losses that we have in in, in tort law. And traditionally, those those categories have been categories for pain and suffering, loss of amenities that the, that the claimant suffers, damages for mental distress, damages for for say reputational 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 harm. Um, and and what we see is that the uh, these cases kind of show up the difficulties with that with that traditional framework, and so what's what's left for judges to do is to shoehorn shoehorn the pattern into into say the distress the distress head, and then to the extent that it doesn't fit in, we see some other kind of reasoning going on. And I think that when we look at a case like say 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 Weller, where there's an explicit acknowledgement in that case that say the twins are going to award them two thousand five hundred pounds of damages each, even though they wouldn't have suffered any real embarrassment. It seems to me that the you can either do some some real gymnastics and say we're giving them damages for the distress that they would have suffered perhaps later in time, or what we can do is we can we can we can step back and say well maybe what's happening some award of damages for breach of privacy itself, and then these later cases like Tulani are coming in and saying it's like that 
these damages are for the, the damages that the, that aren't subsumed on the, the head of distress that need to be rationalized on another basis. Of course, that, that throws up all of these other questions about about how exactly you justify or explain explain those those awards. That, that's that's kind of my my sense of some of the, the trajectory here. Yeah, I mean, I I I agree with with that in terms of there are going to be some limits are are hard cases to this uh, ordinary compensation principle the children cases throw that up so when you when you sort of are faced with this situation or when, when judges and courts are faced with a situation like Weller um uh, or AAA you know you can have, take a very hard-nosed approach and say nominal damages that's what you get because you can't point to any sort of loss or you start to massage the idea of loss um and i think that's what we start to then see in in these cases with you know involving kids but then laterally in in, in gelati where we have this other i this other kind of head of loss that's recognized loss of control over private information I mean, I think, sorry, another potential uh, rationale, though, I think, for these cases that involve the likes of children, you know, why are, why are courts uh, keen to award a substantial amount of damages uh, rather than just a nominal sum? Could be to, one explanation might be to sort of indicate the importance of the right to privacy, this, you know, you, there's a there's a, a kind of marker of that. Um, another reason might well be that they are wanting to, you know, deter conduct, that sort of harassing uh, conduct uh, and, and to punish or condemn that behaviour. And then that rationale would take us much more into what we'd think of as the terrain of, of exemplary or punitive damages. Um, so I think there's an interesting uh, kind of tension in these cases as to is there actually this undercurrent of we want to deter this conduct or punish it? Yes. And so um, I think you've hit on a really important point there, um, Judith, that um, a characteristic feature of not all, but most privacy cases is the underlying idea of shame or embarrassment um, that um, is so finely poised that it, depending on the judge, depending on the nature of the fact pattern, can cause the claim to fall squarely uh, in favour of the claim claimant or in favour of the defendant. Because where there is this sort of sense of shame, if that sense of shame is justified uh, morally, it can then become justified legally um, through doctrines like the freedom to criticize the right of the public not to be misled these types of things so this idea of shame um can be a sort of all or nothing coin i think that um it is the explanation for why for example in mosley ed awards such, such a, a significant amount of money because he's basically saying you have shamed this man for no good reason you have ruined his life for no good reason. But then sometimes it seems to go the other way where actually that sense of shame is is somehow justified because you have done something shameful 
that larger society should know about, such as in the sort of Goodwin, Hutchison, Terry, mm. Ferdinand kind of realm of cases. And um, it compensating that sense of shame is uh, a way in which you have to award large sums of money, given the the um, the terrible, egregious interference with a person's private life, their ability to make and form friendships with others, relationships with others. But it does look punitive at the same time. And that was a problem with uh, Mosley. And one of the problems with Galati, it does look punitive. It looks like you're saying it takes, but it reminds you of something that Fennec and Philipson said long ago in their textbook on um, media freedom, um, where they say, if privacy sums are small, we just descend into the level of tokenism. We don't really have a privacy right because there's no incentive not to not to breach it. I'd like to press a bit more on this issue of exemplary damages. This is something that you've been thinking about, Judith. And I don't recall seeing judges expressly awarding exemplary damages in privacy cases. And it's not a routine thing at all. It gets mentioned, I believe, in Mosley. Well, I'm trying to think. Yeah. Um, now, not right. Know, a long time since I don't know. I, th- I thought the it's rejected in Mosley. Yeah. So, so, so I mean, Mosley, I think is uh, f- for me in this area of law. Mosley is a case that kind of helps unlock the explanation of why the law's developed in the way it has. And what I mean by that is Mr. Justice E.D. in one kind of in one breath in Mosley says there ought not to be exemplary damages for breaches of privacy in general. Right. Like there's almost no good case that can justify it for various reasons, such as punishment really doesn't have place in private law it's something that should be left to the criminal law um, there's not the adequate safeguards in, in privacy um, when it comes to punishing defendants um, and concerns about freedom of expression as well like we, if we award punitive sums of damages would that tip the balance uh, into an, an infringement on the defendant's freedom of expression so it's a very hard uh, kind of argument that's put um, in mostly against exemplary damages, but at the same time, there's this desire to get to a higher a higher quantum, and then we see this idea of vindication come in, mm-hmm. and you know, to me, those those ideas are linked. We don't want the judge isn't comfortable with saying that there's punishment happening, but is comfortable with saying we're vindicating rights. Um, so, you, you know, there haven't been awards of exemplary damages. That that dicta in Mosley has been really influential. Mm. Um, I, there is no statutory basis uh, in which they may be awarded Section 34 of the Crime and Courts Act 2013, but there is no reported case uh, in which uh, that the, uh, exemplary damages have been awarded under that provision. I suspect it's because if you were a barrister arguing a case concerned to get a healthy amount of quantum, you just press the gelati point and you don't make the difficult exemplary damages argument, right? It doesn't matter how you get there for your client, you just want to get there. Um, So for me, those ideas are really, really kind of, I think, crucial to my understanding of this area of law. That's one of those classically slightly suspicious uh, overlaps between uh, 
formal law and substance, isn't it? You know, we have a, a formal uh, ruling that there can be no exemplary damages in misuse of private information cases in Mosley, but at the same time, there is at the time a record sum given out uh, for compensatory damages in that case. And then in, uh, in, in, in Gelati, as you rightly say, we see more compensatory damages but in even vastly higher sums again, we see you know, the records being shouted, six-figure awards. But I should say, I mean, that's just my kind of reading off it. Other people very much take a different view and say, you know, these damages are actually kind of compensatory, or, um, you know, and, and there's not punishment going on. I think Jeevan, for example, would, would offer a different explanation of what's happening in Jaladi than I would. Well, let's ask him, Jeevan. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's right. Firstly, I think just to, to support, to add, to add some further support to, to Judith's point before before I do, I think also in, in PJS, when when it did go to the Supreme Court, there's a there's a line from Lord Nance in that decision actually saying that we're going to leave open the question of whether exemplary damages are available in misuse of private information. So there was a keenness on that case, not to say that the door had been closed by Mosley, and so it might well be a point that's taken up in in a future case um but i suppose but i suppose stepping back and kind of considering this spoiler question of how you justify these awards we can kind of we can kind of think about it in terms of where we're at in this conversation we all have some hesitancy around this idea that distress say does does all the work and the awards clearly seem to be higher than that so then there's a question of how do we justify or explain these these awards? I think Judith's exactly right. One one way, as she puts it, is to massage the idea of, of a loss to kind of put these put these damages into a loss based approach. The other the other way of doing it is to take a non loss based approach to damages. And within that non loss based approach, there might be approaches that say this is not for loss, but to vindicate a right. There might be an exemplary damages approach, and then there's some restitution scholars who might argue that user fee damages aren't compensatory <laughs> damages, and so they're not loss-based either. I actually tend to fall not in that non-loss-based camp. I tend to fall within the first camp that do think <laughs> the idea of loss can be sufficiently, let's not say massaged, but is sufficiently capacious to accommodate what's what's happening in these cases. But I think that you need to step back in the first place and realise that there's, within a loss-based approach, there's different ways of conceiving exactly what the loss is that's going, that's going on here if it's not, it's not a distress-based loss. One way of, of developing out the argument might be the way that Nicole Mohan has done, done so in her work and say that what the loss is for is for the underlying loss of dignity and autonomy that's involved in the, in the privacy. Um, and then you have, have other approaches that say that it's a lost right to control information, which is itself something of real world value. And then you have other approaches that say that some level of vindicatory damages is, is compensatory in, in itself. I tend to fall under not quite any of those those camps. I think that what these these 
substantial damages awards are doing their damages for the interference with the interest that the court is protecting. And so it might seem at first blush that that's very similar to saying that we're getting damages for the infringement of a right. Actually, what I, what I think is going on is that the rights that we recognise in tort law are built upon interests that the law is seeking to protect. And here what the interest that the law is seeking to protect is an interest that we call informational privacy. The law is saying that your welfare is set back by that informational privacy interest being, being interfered with, and that that's what these damages, damages are for. You might be wondering how this how this kind of plays out, what kind of practical example. And for that, I'd say you need to look no further than the award of reputational harm damages in defamation cases. That in those cases, too, the interest that's underlying the court, i.e., the protection of your reputation, is a basis for award in and of itself. And that's exactly what's happening in these cases as well. That it's not that these damages are being awarded as for distress. Certainly agree that there could be some exemplary component going on apart from that. But I think that the way of us explaining these children cases and the more complicated cases that come down the line is saying that the same is the, the interference of informational privacy being, being compensated for those awards. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the uh, idea of damages for reputational harm because before we finish today, I did want to touch on the uh, overlap between the torts relating to uh, reputation and privacy, so the torts of defamation and misuse of private information, which is, of course, a hot topic and something that Paul and I have uh, discussed on uh, many occasions, some of them on the podcast, some of them in the pub, um, and it's always a matter of controversy. But we are seeing, undoubtedly, cases arising in misuse of private information um, where some look at the facts of the case and uh, believe the nub of the complaint to be about reputational interests rather than uh, the protection of one's privacy. Now, as listeners will know from podcasts gone by, I, I take the view that this distinction is rather overplayed uh, and that misuse of private information um, often is not... Um, going beyond its limits when it deals with claims that do have a reputational aspect because reputation is part of Article 8. But Paul takes a different view, um, uh, very much so. Um, and so I, I wondered, particularly on the issue of damages, can it be coherent to have a damages award for both privacy and reputational concerns? And do you envisage a case where that might happen? Um, where there's an express award of damages for both rather than um, the, the, the courts saying, oh, well, this is really either an MPI case or a defamation case, which seems to be what's happening. I suppose we had it in, in Richard, didn't we? I mean, it was exactly. you know, it was part of the, the general damages uh, mm. that, that were awarded in that case. Um, um, it was said in Richard that because part of... Um, because reputation is part of Article 8, there can be a sum that reflects that in a, in a privacy award. I, I have my reservations about, uh, you know, awarding um, damages for injury to reputation through MPI. As I know, um, 
Stephen has as well. Yeah, no, I, I definitely do. And I, I definitely agree with Judith that, that Richard is the case that we have that, that reflects exactly exactly that approach. It's, it's fascinating because I think that what we see in this area is a real division in, in high court cases. Mm-hmm. So we've got Richard and then we've got this previous case from a few years ago uh, dealt with on Striker, Hanan, where you have a willingness to award both reputational harm damages and breach of privacy damages within, within an MPI claim. You have then cases on, they've got a case kind of in the, in the middle, which was the ZXC at, at first instance, where you have, um, where you have Justice McLean in that case, I think, saying that these damages can only be awarded in an MPI claim where, um, the, um, where the defendant is given the opportunity to run a truth defence. <laughs> and then in, um, in Sikri, you have Justice Warby taking a more, more hardline approach seemingly at odds with um with Richard where there's a claim that reputational harm damages cannot be awarded in a in a, in a privacy claim, but but careful to, to say that that he himself didn't see see what he was saying as being irreconcilable with Richard, though I think that there's a it's a clear tension in those cases. Yeah. Interestingly, in, in, in ZXC, which which went to the Supreme Court, Recently, there was extensive oral argument on, on the issue of, of damages. I think quite a few of us expected that, that the judgment would say something important and interesting on, on, on this point, but, uh, it, but there, wasn't, there wasn't really anything said on this point. There was just a really brief line in that decision where it was, where it was noted that judges felt that, that they seemed inclined towards that Richard approach saying that there was no there was no reason why they thought that the approach taken in in defamation should should change the way that we dealt with this in the in the privacy context. So it'll be interesting to see how this how this plays out, but I don't think that we have too much guidance from that from that that decision and instead the, the High Court's gonna have to be left to, to battle this this out. Well, if I had a penny for every time I was hoping the Supreme Court would address a particular point and then have to wade through 200 paragraphs of a judgment where it doesn't, I would be a wealthy man. Mm. But yeah, I mean, it's clearly something that is, I mean, it will, I guess, come before an appellate court, right? Like this, this is an issue that just, I think, won't go away because we do have, you know, this tension is... Stephen said between um, ZXC and Sikri and, and and Richard, um, and and it's you know if we think about sort of trends in in this area of law, it's it's a it's a more recent trend that we've seen is 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 uh, claimants pushing against this this barrier, you know, for for, for I imagine various reasons, right? Like a, a there's a more generous, or we we assume there's a more generous limitation period. With MPI, six years rather than one year for defamation, you have, you know, a multitude of quite well-developed, well-established um, defences and defamation um, that, you know, aren't necessarily a feature of MPI, especially truth. Um, it's going to be an important one. You might want to avoid getting into a uh, getting into a, a, a trial where you, the, the truth is is being hashed out. So, that, I mean, there are lots of, you can see lots of reasons why um, claimants might be keen to kind of push at this boundary. 
and it's definitely an important question for the law for the law is going to be is reputation something that is basically really the the province of one tort is there something special about this interest that means we've there's basically one tort to directly protect it or are we willing to allow other areas to kind of um I think to use Jeevan's language, tread on its turf um, <laughs> uh, at some point. So I think I think it, it'll be a really interesting um, area to to kind of keep an eye on. The, the kind of the, the the point that I just kind of build onto the the back of what I think you said there is that, and and Tom, this might also go to some of the, the conceptual worries that you had at the the beginning beginning there was that I think that we really need to think quite closely about way that the word reputation is coming up in these in these in these contexts. So the interest that I think is protected by the defamation tort is an interest in reputation, but I but I think it's very clearly a specific aspect of a person's reputation, specifically that aspect of reputation that's about them not being judged on the basis of false facts about them. The notion of falsity as being absolutely central to the defamation action. Whereas my own sense is that to the extent that the reputational interest is relevant to the privacy claim, it's a more subsidiary interest that's doing work that's off to the side of that core interest in, in informational privacy, say in the same way that a land-based tort may privacy as a mm. as a subsidiary subsidiary interest. And so I think it's certainly the case that both of these thoughts are doing some work protecting our reputation. But it's the fact that in, in the defamation context, that false facts aspect of reputation is absolutely front and center the the um the way that that tort's operating. And when we're awarding reputational harm damages in that exactly the interference with that precise interest that that um, that those damages awards are for. And so what you're doing the translating those damages or reading across those damages into the privacy context with you're taking all of that baggage with it. And and as 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 Judith says, um, creating a situation where the only way that, that can be managed it seems is by um, is by running a mini defamation trial at the damages stage. <laughs> Of a privacy privacy action, how can you conceivably say make sure that, that the diverging limitation periods are accounted for at that stage of the stage of the of, of the process, even if you can get around the hurdle of, of running the, the truth defence at the damages stage of the motion? Well, I think what the points you made, Jeevan, hammer home for me is that even if as I do, you take a different view on the appropriateness of uh, dealing with reputational concerns, quote-unquote, within a, quote-unquote, privacy claim. Um, what really matters is how you conceptualise the interests at the heart of whichever claim is being made and how one conceptualises privacy leads you in the direction of it either being coherent or not coherent to... Uh, deal with reputational concerns and uh, that is undoubtedly uh, w one of the roots of the 
the conceptual difference that I have on this point of a, a, a fundamentally broader conceptualization of privacy, I think, than, than, than uh, a lot of uh, scholars uh, working in the field in this country at the moment, who are at least those who are, are seeing more of a stark difference between reputation and privacy. Um, and this has been a fascinating discussion. Um, Paul, um, I'm going to give you the final word, since this is a matter close to your heart, particularly on privacy and reputation. Um, what wisdom do you want to leave us with? So, uh, Tom and I disagree uh, about this. I think that um, all the points that uh, Jeevan and, and Judith have made are, are really important. We have reached a point, I think, where if we're not careful, uh, we get almost a sort of equivalent of forum shopping uh, taking place uh, with privacy and defamation. If, in fact, they can cover similar fact patterns or if there's an overlapping fact pattern. Uh, and we move from a point where we have distinct causes of action um, to uh, distinct um causes of action that relate to different uh, claims to a point where we're talking about the attractiveness of particular causes of actions on particular fact patterns and we lose our sense of, of what these talks uh, are trying to do uh, and that would be a bad thing well thank you all three of you uh, very much for uh, joining me today um listeners uh, anyone who wants to uh, hear my take again on why forum shopping is fine, uh, you can scroll back a couple of years worth of episodes and find the discussion that Paul and I had on Richard and BBC when that judgment first came out. It's uh, archived in the history of the podcast, so just scroll down on your iTunes or whatever and you'll find out if you didn't hear it at the time or if you've forgotten about it or if you're just having difficulty sleeping at the moment. <laughs> going to send you off. Um, but thank you, Judith and Jeevan, very much for joining us today. Thanks, Paul, as ever. Uh, we will be back on the Media Law Podcast with something else exciting very soon. Until then, take good care. Bye-bye.